right, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Good Money. Happy, we're happy, blessed All Souls Day. We hope you had a great All Saints Day. It's a marvelous solemnity. We took it off, hence no podcast yesterday. What did you dress for? Like dress up wise and for All oh, Saints for ha- Day. Oh, for Halloween? Well, I know what you did for All Saints. <laughs> you were a giant monkey. He was a big, fat monkey. I was, I was potentially an orangutan. <laughs> oh, orangutan, sorry. I don't know. It was orange, so. <laughs> no, I didn't dress up for uh, I didn't dress up for All Saints Day, but my son did. He dressed up as Saint Robin Hood. Oh, excellent. <laughs> well, I'm glad he knows. I'm glad he knows. Uh, hey, everybody, we are coming to the end of this year. Uh, the College of Saint Joseph the Worker is doing great, getting a lot of applications still from people who are getting them under the radar. Um, but we've also a whole bunch of people in our shop have been making stuff and our store is going live today, which is awesome. awesome. So all the, like, I guess this sounds like a plug or like some lame marketing tr- thing. But it's it's a actually plug. true. But it, it is it a is, plug. But it is. <laughs> it makes it better if I say that it is. Right. Uh, we would love for you guys to buy Christmas presents from our boys at the workshop. 100% of the revenue goes to the College St. Joseph the Worker, building up uh, more workshops and, and spaces in in our base. You can get beautiful things like this. Look at that charcuterie board, handmade by somebody in the shop. Doubles well as a uh, punishment uh, tool. <laughs> uh, what else we got? Show us. I don't know what this is. That's a, that's a cracker tray. A I cracker think. tray. You can put crackers in that tray. Cutting boards, obviously. We really like cherry and walnut around here. Um, that's a nice one. Another pizza board thing? Sure. Look at that. That is pretty. How's your chess game? Ter- oh, I'm bad. <laughs> Not a strategic dude. Chess boards? Yeah. Or checkers. Hey. That's true. What, what else? else we got? We got a... What? <laughs> what is this? It's <laughs> a Pickler Triangle. Anybody who knows Montessori knows what that is. Okay. That's that's outstanding. I don't, I don't know what it is. Wow, I like it. I yeah, like... and we got kneelers. Look at that. Oh, that's you can just pray for days on this thing. Oh no, I'm scratching just ice table. <laughs> Look at that. Uh, there should be something up front here. The guy hand did this. Marion, do you see this? You see this? Yeah, it's cool. Isn't that cool? Yeah. All right. So get all those. Get all those for your loved ones for Christmas. This is a plug. It's a real plug. Workshop, baby. It's a great thing. It's a beautiful thing for those that don't know. It's a basically a tool-sharing network that we've got a bunch of tools here. $50 a month gets you access to all the tools. Yep. And you make a bunch, you sell a bunch. That's right. So thanks, everybody, for helping us out and the boys out who are making stuff. Yeah. Which is, I guess, fitting. Is that a transition to like? We're no, going to talk not. about no, what are we talking about today? <laughs> we're talking. We're actually ultimately going to be talking about redeeming money today. Yeah. Why is it okay that we use money? This is sort of your shtick. Yeah, you have you have a guilty conscience. Yeah, about yeah. money, <laughs> and so you always ask. Well, you know, you kind of read through. I was reading through why I kind of got onto this topic in the first place was that I was reading through the Bible, and the tradition, and people had a lot of negative things to say about money. Totally. Um, and when they... Woe to you who are rich, for instance. <laughs> it's a bad one, you know? 
the Pharisees were condemned for being lovers of money. Lovers of money, yeah. Uh, the whole, like, tartar for a uh, rich man to pass through and, well, to get to heaven, the camel to get through the eye of a needle. That doesn't really sound all that great. Um, I'm going to read out a number of these things just so that people don't say, like, come on, the tradition isn't that harsh. It is. Okay. <laughs> uh, so when commenting on the passage, he sent them out without money. St. Jerome says that he that Jesus did so, so that the apostles would show that wealth was to be trodden upon. Mm. Uh, St. Bonaventure liked to remind us that the only person, this is another quote, that none of Christ's disciples was lost except the one who carried a money bag. Mm. Uh, St. Augustine said that the only times that Christ used physical force to bring in the kingdom of God was to cast out demons of people and the cast out money changers at the temple. Mm. Uh, St. Bonaventure again and St. Gregory the Great like to make special note of the fact that it wasn't the love of money, but rather money itself, which choked out the word of God when Jesus was telling the parable of the sowers. Uh, another crazy thing, St. Thomas collects um, uh, a, a variety of commentators on the Luke 6 passage on iniquitous mammon yep. and uh, and says that it's not just ill-begotten gains, which have that name, iniquitous mammon, but all money uh, that's ever used. And then he collects all the these different fathers who try and ask, you know, why is it that he, uh, that he condemned it? Sorry, that's Luke 16, not Luke 6. Um, and I think, you know, there's, you know, the whole God or mammon thing shows a real divide between the modes in which the kingdoms operate. Um, and, I th and I don't think it's a small thing to say that Judas's rejection and betrayal of Christ for money is without a doubt some sort of a poignant rejection of Christ's teachings sure. as well. And maybe that's too obvious to, to say, but... Um, but it shows a real betrayal of, hmm. of not just a person, but like what he's calling us to yeah. as well. No, it's certainly the whole tradition taken as a whole makes us look very strange when we spend well, I'm our... not done. Let's keep going. Okay. Oh, yeah. Here yeah. you go. Hit me up. Okay. It's Pope Clement, fourth Pope. Uh, if God paid the wages of righteous of the righteous immediately, we would soon be engaged in business. Emporia is the word that he, he used not godliness. That's important. We'll bring up later. Uh, Leo the Great. It is not difficult, excuse me, <laughs> it is difficult. It is difficult to prevent sin between buying and selling. Mm. John Chrysostom exhorted his congregants to despise money, and he said that nobody should come into the church carrying money. Mm. Uh, Basil the Great. Who is the father of lies? Who is the author of forgery? Who gave birth to perjury? Is it not money? And then the Glossa Ordinaria, the kind of the, like the study Bible of the Middle Ages, um, wrote that the life of poverty is an imitation of the life of the future in which all is held in common. Going over even to um, the Council of Vienne, that they declare money to be malum, evil, or uh, at least having the appearance of evil. Mm. And it has to be the, the latter ultimately, but uh, but this is like crazy. I mean, this is really harsh teachings. And then when you find 
guys like St. Augustine or St. Bonaventure justifying money, they say, yeah, because you can give it away and it's great. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, at that point, you're not really using money as money. Mm -hmm. You're just kind of giving it away. I mean, you use money as money insofar as it's a medium of exchange, it's a measure of value, and that you use it to switch possessions with somebody else. Right. But if you're just giving it away, you're just, you're not switching, you're not exchanging right, right. anything. Yeah. So I, so anyways, that's kind of how I got into thinking about this and why it's, I just find it so, so strange that there was not like some sort of like clear uh, consideration that, of these things being so evil in, our, in the modern church. Oh, yeah. And, and not knowing like a real justification for why we can use it as well. Right. No, in the modern church, it's anyone that takes up the topic of money immediately sets out to say why it's good. I mean... Mm -hmm. It's a, it, it doesn't make sense with the entire tradition because it seems like what we have to start with is that there's an actual condemnation yeah, <laughs> and then talk about like, so what should we do with this condemned thing Yeah, as opposed to being like, well, maybe some people said that it was bad, but in fact, we know that it's good through all of these prudent measures that you can take to secure your family's future. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, it, it does end up being kind of utilitarian like that. Yeah. Whereas like the arguments that people utilize today is like, yeah, but we couldn't do otherwise. Mm -hmm. It's just like, you know, think about how much good it has brought about. And it's like, well, those are utilitarian arguments. Those are like, you know, let us do evil so that good might come sort of thing. Sure. Or let's ignore that there's any sort of stain on the, on money. Mm -hmm. And we just focus on the good that it brings. That's utilitarian. And that's been condemned by the church. I mean, it's condemned by St. Paul and Romans. It's condemned by, by uh, very clearly in, when talking about contraception and such, yeah, yeah, yeah. By, John, by Paul VI. And then John Paul II wrote an entire encyclical uh, condemning, uh, condemning this utilitarian way of thinking as well. Yeah, utilitarianism is the opiate of the people. Because what it does, all right. What it does, nice hot take. Well, I mean, it's it's just that something working and something providing a good doesn't really tell you much about that thing itself, right? Right. Because I could live in a wicked, wicked world in which the only way to achieve something like food on my table was to punch orphans in the face. <laughs> you can imagine that world. But then if I'm the guy there going like, well, you know, punching orphans in the face it has problems, of course, but look at all the goods it brings, you know, yep. what's happening there? Well, what's happening is that the social order in which we're obliged to punch people in the face is not being questioned, right? So it's like an opiate because insofar as we engage in the utilitarian re uh, reasoning, we never question the social order of, as such. Mm -hmm. And with money, it's very obvious. Like insofar as we're always focusing on like, well, but you can use money to make your grandmother happy and you can use money to, you know make your church pretty or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, when that becomes the way Christians talk about money, what's obviously happening is that we are not discussing a social order in which life is only attainable through money, yeah. which is what we have. Right. Um, so the utilitarianism just becomes an opiate. Right. Yeah. That makes uh, a lot of sense. A, 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 an opioid. Opioid. To make it more modern. Opioid was kind of like a British thing. Yeah, that was... The... Yeah, we're talking 19th about the, century. Yeah. yeah, no, no, let's let's utilitarianism is the fentanyl of the masses. <laughs> now I understand. Okay, <laughs> I'm clear on this now. <laughs> um, you know, and it's just just so these critiques. I think. I mean, it should be this kind of a drum that we hit a lot, but like Christianity changed a lot, you know, and for yeah. these condemnations to be dropped, 
in the context that they were was just total political dynamite um, because money was not only uh, not suspected of being anything evil, but it was worshipped and praised. I mean, you find really early on in such like the Didache that there was a condemnation of paying any priest for their work. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like now we, we're kind of back there again with having the pray for mass inten- or pay for mass intentions yeah, and yeah, stuff yeah. like that. Um, but that was condemned explicitly early on in the church and continue continues to be condemned today. Um, but compare that to Greece and Rome. It was not only okay to allow for somebody to pay you for some religious um, uh, right uh, to enact that, but it was required even to the point where there was taxes amongst all the citizenry to be able to to continue on with particular rites and liturgies mm. and festivals, mm-hmm. um, it, it was it was required, and the priests were tax exempt themselves. They were the only ones who were free of the whole the stranglehold of the emperor. And they and they talked about this explicitly. You, you mean the Christian priests or the pagan priests? The pagan priests. Yeah, okay. yeah. Later on during Constantine's time, that actually switches as well. Mm-hmm. So the the Christian priests were tax exempt, but that's a that's a different matter and. Um, though an important thing to discuss at a different time. Um, I mean, just think about uh, Juno Moneta, for instance. She was, um, she was, a, she's the person from where once we derive the name money, Moneta, okay. money. Uh, she borrows her name from money itself. So out of the artifact that gets used around, we created a god, mm-hmm. and the god is explicitly. Um, worshipped and and praised she looked over the treasury and like so many other gods in ancient in the ancient world uh, her shrine was also a bank um, and the banks were places where people could withdraw you know money and they could take loans and they could store their funds just like any other bank but it was precisely because it was the possession of the gods within that made them secure right. so more demanding than the priests were actually the gods themselves and um this, I'll just... is, this is true throughout the ancient world that uh, temples served as banks not, yeah not just in greece and rome totally absolutely yeah mesopotamia syria yeah. babylon um, okay, Theognis, he writes, I'm just going to keep kind of going off on this to convince everybody that they loved money. All right. Theognis wrote that um, riches was the fairest and the most desirable of all the gods. Um, Cicero once said that the sovereignty and power over the earth is the portion of a god to whom we, as well as the Greeks, have given the name that denotes money. In Latin, dis, in Greek, Pluto. Um, let's keep going. Uh, <laughs> this idea of sacrificing two gods was not some sort of unitive action, something that brought you together as we think of the sacrifice of holy masses today, but it was explicitly an exchange. And they mm-hmm. thought about it in these terms so that so much so that in kind of the secondary literature, we give the name to it of, of, uh, do quia dedesti, or like do des, like if I, I will do this so that you will do something. Tit for tat. For me. Tit for tat, baby. Um, uh, Euthyphro, in Plato's Euthyphro, you have uh, Socrates defining holiness as, quote, the skill of bartering 
emporike techne between gods and men, which is also really interesting because that's the same word that that Pope Clement, Pope St. Clement used as yeah. well to say that this is the explicit thing that we are not doing yeah. as Christians. Yeah, I know. It's really, it's really funny that um, as a Christian, I think most people have gone through this where at some, usually a young age, you kind of try bartering with God. You do a, yeah. <laughs> if you do this, then I'll do that. Uh, but you're immediately struck by how abhorrent that is, uh, mm-hmm. or at least it, it feels wrong. You know you're doing something wrong that doesn't fit. And it's just amazing that that wasn't even a part of the ancient conception. I was reading some different Hittite prayer ritual, or prayers yeah, um, where it's not just that it's an exchange with a god where you say, give me this or give me that. It's also a threat against the gods. So there's something that a lot of people have spoken of this better than I will, but there's something about paganism with that actually puts the human person in an antagonistic position uh, over and against the gods. So this one uh, Hittite queen is oh. praying and she says, you know, look at your temple. It's really in disrepair. <laughs> look at your food. You're not getting a lot of it. And it's because this city, you know, really needs your help. So, you know, if you want it, you got to give a little. And so there's even the threat of like, well, we won't feed you gods. We won't give to you gods unless we come to a fair exchange. Yep. So that That's idea. That's the do queer to desti thing. Yeah. I'll give if, if you've already given. Right, right, thing. right. Yeah. But it's fascinating because it, you know, we talk about paganism generally as a system of thought, a system of belief, a system of, of living in which divinity is dragged down Um to the status of a merely superpower. So instead of it being transcendent and other and divine, divinity becomes like what is over us. Uh, And that is a status to which man can hope to, to reach. Like, well, if all it means to be God is to have power over others, then man can become God. And so there's this, within paganism, there's this like this uh, mishmashing where it's like, well, you treat God as if he's a man, but that is uh, enables you to then treat man as if he's God. It's, yes. You know, it, it's this circle. Um, well, and that's explicitly considered at, at some point. I have the, a list of um, inscriptions. The epigraphic study of Greco-Roman and New Testament semantic field. Um, and, and this was, this tracks like beneficent gifts through the ancient world. Oh, okay. Um, and, and people will give things like, um, roads to a city, mm-hmm. or they'll sometimes if, if uh, there was a pretty funny one about somebody uh, recognizing that that grain was only being sold per bushel of like seventy six drachmae, and he sold it for forty six instead. You know, and so like praising him, yeah, God for, gave him a statue, gave him a plaque, that sort of thing. Well, and then and then he was given a, a golden crown. You know, and trumpeted around this city and stuff like that. And this is this is a very common thing. So he was given um, grandeur in the city and kind of a divine status, sometimes explicitly, mm. um, because the gods, the god emperor, was giving him that glory. You know, so. I think immediately of um, Joseph in in the Bible um, when he when he solves the problem of the famine when he yeah. interprets the dream yeah, yeah. and he solves the problem of a famine through 
building big storehouses and storing up. Yeah. There's this immediate <laughs> problem where he gets put in the chariot of the Pharaoh. Right. And wears the Pharaoh's ring and is driven around the city. Um, and of course, with the story of Joseph, there's this immediate problem of um, there's a temptation to idolatry there. Uh, there's a temptation to see Joseph as divine because you think about the end of the the very end of the Joseph story, his brothers come and they kneel before him. And Joseph says, whoa, whoa, uh, am I God? Like, I'm not God. Uh, get up. And he picks them all up. So he actually rejects. Right. And that's part of what makes the Jewish and then Christian religion unique is that they, they reject again and again the conflation with power over man yep. as being divine. Right. So right at that moment where Joseph does have power, he has amassed, he has quite literally the ability to exchange. I mean, I'm not going to go through the whole Genesis story, but he has the power of money. Yes. Yeah. And and he took all of it. Yeah, I, mean, that, right, I, mean, exactly. I mean, Genesis makes that explicit. Once all the silver and gold was gone, then they turned to cattle. You know? And after cattle, they turned to themselves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. so this power over... Land and then themselves, I think. Yeah. yeah. This power yeah. over the other appears as divine, but the Jew is yeah. the one who says, get up off your knees. Right. I'm not divine just because I have power over because I know God. Mm -hmm. And God is not like that. Mm -hmm. God is a, a giver. He gives good gifts. Yeah. He's a father. Uh, and asserts that over and against the claims of paganism. I think that's, that is always the difference. Yeah. And I think this is kind of the beginning of the real concern that Christians have for money is that it does make you a real individual who is fending for yourself against somebody else. Hmm. And that when, once you start to do that with, with God, once you have that consideration that things are tit for tat, I'll do this for you as soon as you yeah. do this for me, then, then you've actually pitted God against you. Like he's your enemy in these exchanges. Right, right. Um, well, and, and that's definitely the case in, in the ancient sources. You just see this kind of um, almost tangible like irritation at the relationship between God and man. Oh, it's Like it's terrifying. always about to break out into war. Their creation stories always begin with some kind of like, you know, like think about the Greeks. Yeah, totally. Their, their whole beginning of their whole story is that there was an argument about who gets what of the sacrificial meal and the man tricks the gods into getting the worst part. And so enmity with the gods is really the beginning of, of that culture. And it, and it seems to track with, with most pagan cultures, but probably someone would, who wasn't so sympathetic would push back and say, well, what do you mean? They weren't the benefactors you're talking about um, giving out of the goodness of their hearts. What I mean is wasn't, well, wasn't there. In but like... before we get there, I want to make sure this point's really clear because we okay. might be moving too fast is that as, as soon as you start to think that that's your relationship with mm. the gods, you know, once you have that kind of Socratic understanding, it's that holiness is being able to bargain really, barter really well with the gods. Yeah. Then you can you start to expand that understanding to all relationships, and that's just kind of like a liturgical habit. This is one of those like ideas have consequences things. Yeah, you know where the real uh, creed of your faith starts to reform your actions with others. Yeah, well, and I think it would also work the other way around, right? Like, no doubt, they always mutually reinforce one right, another. Because yeah. who do we learn what God's like from? Well, we learn it from other people. We learn it from our fathers, our mothers. Yeah, and so. If um, the idea of exchange relationships, if they become the dominant ones, okay, I'm not even talking about 
Roman Greece. I'm just talking about us now. Like, <laughs> look at America. Like, we have this sense that the real world is the world governed by money. Mm-hmm. Family is this odd preparatory world where at the age of 18, you then go out to do what? To make money. Mm -hmm. And that is the real as opposed to the fantasy, which is the idea that you can live in a life of a gift economy, Mm -hmm. right? So we quite deliberately make make a movement from one to the other. And so it is a certain training about who God is if... If in our familial life, we are given a catechesis that says the real world is one in which you are exchanging and trying to get the best deal mm-hmm. within mutual, uh, like at best, uh, you know, mutually beneficial exchanges, but at worst, you're just fighting. You right. know? And of course, that influences how we view the divine, even as how we view the divine influences all of our relationships. Right. And so our idea of God is very interesting, right? Because our idea of God is so far from the idea of gift. Um, and yet we wonder why there's such a sort of stupid atheism about today as this like, well, if that's God, I don't like him. It's like, well, yeah, because we have this idea of God that is much more pagan than Christian increasingly. It's just that we have the Christian God as the object of our increasingly um, exchange-based idea. Right. But certainly it was true of the Roman and Greeks, not just us. This mutually enforcing sort of... Yeah. And, and I think the, the point that they focus, why they focus on money so, so much, mm-hmm. obviously it is kind of the, the medium of exchange. So that seems obvious. Um, but even like when St. Thomas says in the Summa that, that money, once it's possessed, is certainly of itself of a nature to hinder the perfection of charity, especially by enticing and distracting the mind. Mm. He's, he's suggesting that that is something that is almost mutually exclusive with a, with a life of love. Yeah, totally. You know, or I mean, I guess that's obviously so. If the nature of the thing itself, then um, then there is not space for God to enter in, in yeah. there. And and this is one of the things why I've kind of written a funny blog about why you shouldn't pay your kids for doing their chores and stuff, because it's entering those sort of exchange, monetary, exclusive relationships mm-hmm into the heart of the family. Yeah. Um, and that is the last place where a kid should be habituated towards this tit for tat um, mentality. Yeah, totally. You know, and in, in the justifications for like preparing them for the world uh, is the complete opposite, especially when John Paul II says things like the home is and should be the model for the economy mm-hmm. rather than the, 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 or excuse me, for the larger market, rather than the larger market being the model for the family. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Where does he say that? Um, we're going to put it on the screen. We're going to put it on the screen. <laughs> Actually, if people have been listening to the audio. The places where we forget most our citations, Josiah later puts them up on YouTube <laughs> on the screen. So it saves us. All hell. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's Lavore Mixer since. Okay. So, yeah, sounds like that would make it, yeah. sense, wouldn't it? Um, uh, yeah. So, but okay. Getting down from that kind of theoretical place back to this question that, that you asked, like, weren't, weren't these guys who were the big benefactors of the ancient society, weren't they like doing this out of the Yeah. And, of the and maybe another way you know? to put this is like, it seems like what you're saying is that Christianity 
um, was a radical break with what preceded it. It went from praise and worship of money to yeah. total condemnation, right? So what mm-hmm. we're not talking about is a nuanced, like, oh, there's a lot of good in the pagans. And they only, I'm sorry, I don't know what the accent is, but, <laughs> and they only need to be sort of brought up into the light with a couple tweaks. Was that like, your neocon accent? I think it was. Yeah. <laughs> just bubbled out of me. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't, I don't actually disrespect anyone to the degree that I have voices for them. Yeah. <laughs> um, apparently. <laughs> So there's this radical break, and I think the the pushback on on that claim, and it might be motivated out of a desire to preserve what's obviously an increasing paganism within our own modernity to say like, well, can't we indulge a little bit of this, right? Right. But the pushback is something like, well, come on, you you've got magnificent people, you've got, I mean, look at. Aristotle's ethics. Look at mm. you know the praise of the magnanimous man. Look at um, look at just the sheer fact of people giving um, to you know, like you said, selling grain mm-hmm. at a low price, mm-hmm. building public works, right? Mm-hmm. Liturgia. Mm-hmm. That's what it meant, right? Mm-hmm. Public yeah. works. Everyone was expected to sort of engage in public works. Aren't we? Aren't we sort of giving these these poor pagans a bad rap? Yeah, it's a great it's a great retort, um, and one that has a better retort. Um, you know, for the mag- magnanimous man, that's an interesting one, and I didn't prepare for for that sure. question. Um, <laughs> but but a number of scholars have pointed out that the biggest breaks between Saint Albert the Great and Saint Thomas Aquinas from mm-hmm. Aristotle is actually on the description of the magnanimous man, yeah. um, precisely because it was not the one who was great total self-control over himself and uh and a true model for society but really is the injection of humility yeah in that person which was a uh, virtue that is nowhere to be found within aristotle yeah so that is a fundamental turn yeah um that that idea of the marian docility being central to the christian life which was completely absent yeah. from aristotle's description i love that you said the marian dude because i <laughs> all i actually do is gender and uh, <laughs> I, uh hanser von balthazar just passingly says as long as we don't have antiquity's anti-feminine bias then we can understand and then he starts talking about the church uh and i think nice. that's when you when you talk about the the a, a lot of what we talk about could be, I think, described. A lot of the critique of antiquity mm-hmm. could be ultimately described as an anti-feminine bias, like the idea that associates the feminine with the slave as a single category of of life, as opposed to the uh, the citizen male. But we won't go down that road because we're not doing gender. Well, it makes you uncomfortable to think about gender. <laughs> Am I going to have to give up my misogyny? <laughs> Not today, says Mark. No, go ahead. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think that would be the first one. Were they doing it out of the good of their hearts? Well, Yeah, is there like a proto-Christian sort of thing happening or no? Well, there, I, I, you know, it's so funny that you'd kind of want to go through examples and see if when people are say, saying, I am truly doing this for good or not. And Peter Brown did. Peter Brown's like the guy that invented the this study of late antiquity. And um, he wrote one really interesting book on the transition between pagan giving and Christian giving. Okay. And he just kind of lays out his claims early, early on. And 
and particularly on that question of like yeah. selling things at market below market rate. Okay. Um, yeah. And he says, um, a benefactor might be no altruistic philanthropist, but a rich landowner who had decided that the time was ripe to offer his grain upon the market, thereby reaping for himself both a handsome profit and the additional glory of being known to have saved his city mm. from imminent famine. Um, another guy who has a name, I just not even going to try, um, but his book is called The Politics of Munificence, uh, published with Cambridge. It's It's just... You know, some of those names, you just can't, you just can't try, but those are enough details to get to the book. Um, (laughs) um, That's how we do citations around here. Yeah. (laughs) Our supervisors loved us. Yeah. Footnote, that one guy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He has a really, I mean, his book is really interesting. Um, And, and of course there's exceptions of, of, you know, true virtue and goodness breaking through within paganism. Probably within the family, especially, I'd yeah. imagine. Yeah, I think that's right. But his argument is that benefactors, like the huge givers of gifts, is confusing, sorry, I should just back up. Uh, in the literature, they're called benefactors. Yeah. Um, but really who they are are people that give magnificent gifts. So yeah. it's separated off. And those those two virtues are related, obviously. Um, it is it is kind of a confusing term um, or change of terms that is in the literature of classics. But anyways, um, the, the benefactor um, gave when there was about to be some sort of disruption in the social order. Mm. To able to to satiate the people, right. and he tracks through a long period of time, and and he demonstrates this quite clearly. But one thing that he says, um, and that Peter Brown also argues for at length, yeah. is that there was no understanding of giving to the poor. Mm-hmm. Peter Brown, I think, draws out like the one or two examples of whenever that was considered in in the kind of the Greco Roman inscriptions where it's like given to a poor person or what mm-hmm. whatever um it just wasn't a thing usually you were giving to a city and you were giving to a city in a sense to say i appreciate ad- adhere to uh and hope to uphold the values yeah. in the order that we have set right and that the reception of that gift by the city and the people within it was their affirmation of of those same sentiments. Right. So you're almost, stop me if I'm wrong, but mm-hmm. it seems like you're talking about the, the bread and circus model of, of magnificence, right? Like there's great expenditures given, mm-hmm. but their motivation is not for the poor as like a subject. They don't, they're not thinking about like the poor are in need and we should alleviate needs. They're thinking like in order to keep the mob happy. Yes we should give them a big circus. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's explicitly what, what they argue for in these books. Yeah. Um, and, it, I mean, it's not like these are small fish. But, I mean, but, Peter Brown is like the man. No, no, no. And, so, and I think yeah. that there's a... You you want to get cynical about it, but I don't think you have to because there is a way in which the poor hadn't been created yet. So what I mean is we think of it in terms of Christian, like the Christian achievement of the poor as a consideration, the poor as to be alleviated. It's just, that's just natural. Right. Um, but if it wasn't there, 
then it's not like you've got a bunch of guys that are like, well, we look like we're really giving to the poor, but in fact, we're actually just boosting our own names and promoting our own social order and stopping people from rioting and such. Right. It's yeah. like, no, that probably wasn't even the mentality because there wasn't this like other thing they should have been doing. Exactly. Christianity actually had to introduce um, almsgiving as almsgiving, not as a mechanism for an exchange of some intangible glory, which is, seems to be what the ancient benefactors are really doing. Right. It certainly was a mechanism, but what, how apparent that was to them, it, yeah. I don't know. I don't think it was all that apparent to them. I mean, there was a lot of kind of mysticism, you know, built into it yeah. uh, as well. Yeah. And so the fact that you find w within these ancient narratives, this kind of this uh, subversive effect, you know, for somebody's personal benefit, it mm. really su suggests that there was not necessarily a clear cause and effect in, in their mind from um, from the mechanism, but they, they but like shrouded in whole language of religiosity and whatever. I, I think that that they actually took that quite seriously. Yeah. Um, there was a huge wealth gap at that time yeah. uh, as well. I mean, about five percent of people were considered to be wealthy, you know, wealthy enough to become, like, get on city council and, and such. <laughs> uh, and uh, and, you, and it's, it's, that's about 100,000, what is the word, stress day, or like, think about $100,000, you know, sure. that's what you had to have in the bank they considered rich when subsistence at that time was about 800. Um, so there was a huge wealth gap. And, um, and the bread and circus thing was 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 somehow um, accepted by the vast majority of people, saying that we're maybe a little bit disgruntled or whatever, but but we're but we're going to accept this for now. Yeah. And their acceptance was, you know, really saying like, just leave us here. Yeah, it's, it wasn't like class war. <laughs> no, and and the idea of like the poor as a class to yeah. help was really a Christian introduction. Yeah, um, that was a new idea. Giving beneficently. Uh, was uh, to the poor was something that Christ, that really the Jews of the Old Testament and then, uh, you know, spurred on by Christianity, mm -hmm. really introduced to the Christian world mm -hmm. to the point where things completely upended and the laws began to change when Constantine converted and yeah. Christianity became a staple in the, in the empire. Yeah, the idea of just giving it away. I mean, you think about how Christ talks about this. I mean, he already said this. We can pull it out of the sources of antiquity, but Christ said that the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and their people call them benefactors. Right. So Christ knows that the way that the rich operate in antiquity mm -hmm. is to, in fact, maintain themselves in their powerful positions and, in fact, use gifts as a means of, in fact, like in exchanges mm -hmm. to get stability, to get glory. Mm -hmm. um, but the appearance of that is as benefactors. So Christ is just saying, like, you guys, the way you work makes your power look like beneficence. Yeah. And it shall not be so with you, he says to the apostles who are going to become the quote-unquote kings of the new order of, of Christendom. And their way of operating is to, in fact, give, um, and instead of instead of exchange, right? And actually, and this was explicitly taken up in that early church as well, because again, like kind of turning to the Constantinian reforms I mentioned earlier, that the um, 
that the bishops were tax exempt. Mm -hmm. And they were tax exempt explicitly because with all of their excess, they were supposed to give it to the poor. Right. So if you were taxing them, then you were actually taxing the poor. Right, right. Um, and I think you told me that almsgiving was always done through the church. Yeah, that's another thing that these, these scholars cite is that, that it was done through the priests and the bishops because they knew the needs of their parish best. Imagine. <laughs> Imagine yeah. bishops <laughs> knowing the needs of the diocese. Oh my gosh. That's low. Our our bishop is moving on. Try, okay. Moving on. Well, he's trying to suppress our diocese. Yeah. <laughs> Just so you know why it's hitting so it's hurting. Save Steubenville, baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, say a prayer for us, guys. Oh man. Uh yeah, so the but they were it was given through the church in part because it was the unity of of the church and of the family that was bonded by and and also further is that alms were only ever given to fellow believers mm, really you know yeah and this again i think it draws right back to that first point we were making about the the true unity of the family is that you always prioritize your family. Mm -hmm. You got to stabilize the family mm -hmm. before you stabilize someone else. Mm -hmm. And I think this, uh, the extension of the family that happens in, in the church or really what the church is, yeah. is just extending of the family. Making, making brothers and sisters of all men. Yeah. yeah. Is, is really that sort of thing where you're, you're reforming your relationship giving that priority to them, but also welcoming uh, them yeah. into that familiarity, that mode of love instead of that mode no, that's, that's of exchange. Very, that's very beautifully put because it's not simply that there was this turn of like, well, now we're going to just give away our money. It's like, well, now if the object of your alms is your brother, mm -hmm. then you, in giving to your brother to alleviate his needs, uh, certainly don't do it for the purpose of continued power over your brother. It's mm -hmm. like where the where the where the subject of alms or the object I guess of alms is now family relation. Mm -hmm. Then the the very idea of making that a mechanism of exchange of sort of hidden exchange is more abhorrent seems to me. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, but, man. But I think this also starts to reveal some of the or might get kind of to the point of all right, how do we justify the use of money uh, as well as if 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 the kind of the pagan mindset was the the gods and their relationship to us is exercised through exchange, yeah, and the Christian one casts that out, yeah, and just as kind of the pagan mentality of a relationship with with the gods started to inform our relationship with man and and vice versa, yeah. so the same thing should happen on the Christian side. Totally. So where does the case for? Um, the use of money come in, and and it's not on a utilitarian thing. It it really comes to the point of um, actually protection of your relationship with God. So within his treatise on virtue and uh, on charity, in particular, Saint Thomas says something that's uh, perhaps very obvious: is that um, love of self does come before love of neighbor, precisely because you have to set the occasion, the material occasion for your life of virtue to increase. And so by if you set priority over somebody else, taking care of somebody else rather than yourself and those in your care, mm -hmm. if you've perverted your priority, then you've actually given up on your relationship with God, mm. which is which is a you know, 
the fundamental reason why we're here. Yeah, or as yeah. Father Greer liked to say yesterday at uh, the Mass for All Saints, um, if you do not become a saint, you are a complete failure. You are a complete failure, yeah. yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is an attempt not to be a complete failure, is, is using money. And, it, and it's not so much that you're using money as something to... Um, gain control over somebody else. Mm-hmm. St. Thomas makes the, you know, this distinction between the two uses of power, one to help those, help others, and then another to help yourself. And even after the fall, uh, the latter is condemned. So you cannot use your power to help yourself. Uh, it still has to be a use of power for the common good mm-hmm. of which you are a part, right? Mm-hmm. So... Um, within his, um, within this kind of reforming of the plot of understanding us as a part, a part of the whole, um, the use of, of money actually is um, a way in which you're ensuring that somebody else is not treating you ill as they may otherwise do. What do you mean? Like, so if you are uh, kind of within heaven, where there will be no more money, um, where this is like poetically demonstrating the fact that the substance of money, gold, is going to be used to pave the streets. Mm-hmm. Uh, gold, it will, you know, have have met its fulfillment, you know, getting you to heaven, and therefore no longer getting trodden money. on. It's getting trodden on, bro. Yeah. Um. It. Um. That we're able to have a world without money, precisely because everybody is loving others. Mm-hmm as they should. The mode of exchange is totally replaced with the mode of charity, but we haven't hit that yet. And so we are using some sort of legal, I mean, money as a legal instrument, um, so as to be able to to protect what is necessary for our life of virtue Mm -hmm. from from others who would otherwise uh, not protect it and not cultivate it. So it's for dealings with strangers. Exactly. Yeah, or people who have you have not fully loved yet, or they have not fully loved you, and 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 it's different than say like um a matter of uh, like killing, for instance. Like there's occasions when uh, Saint Thomas, you know, says it's okay to kill somebody in office, like just war, but also if somebody is like destroying your your city, right? Um, and you don't have the means by which to, uh, you know, to preserve their life. But that has to be done by somebody higher up the hierarchy than you. Mm-hmm. You cannot do ill, he says, to somebody if if um, if it's not. Excuse me. Somebody uh, can lower down the hierarchy cannot do ill to another without the express consent of you know the king or the lord, mm-hmm. right? But this is the great thing about money is that it attempts some equality. It doesn't achieve it, but it's like our way of trying to meet some equality. So within that exchange, you're not doing ill towards them and they're not doing ill towards you, but you're sort of some real trade that's going on that, that tries to, uh, ins- that tries to exercise legal power. Mm-hmm. Um, but in such a sense that everybody's coming out yeah. fair. So you're just you know? a pre, you're avoiding loss. You're avoiding on, loss. And yeah. there's, there's people in this world whom that is the extent of the relationship as of yet. Yeah. Which is to mutually avoid loss together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's what money achieves. 
Yeah, and that's what money achieves. Yeah, I know you can see this. Um, you can see this very obviously, like on, on a on a very practical level. Like when there's someone who's homeless, um, and I don't know them, mm-hmm. I have a more paradoxical thing because most people say, "Well, if you don't know them, then don't give them money because you don't know what they're going to do with it." But to my mind, there's sort of the opposite problem, which is like, I want to invite you into my house to have a meal or something, mm-hmm. but but I don't know you and maybe you're going to kill me. Like, you know, there's this, and I don't mean like to blame the homeless for this. I feel this way about anyone. Maybe you'll kill me is sort of how we start. <laughs> James <laughs> McCann, baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. James did not kill me. Thank you, James. Um, and what money obviously allows one to do is to have a way of giving to the person where they're not yet coming into the home. But it's obvious at the same time that were I to then, when the relationship extended, to continue in the use of money as opposed to moving into uh, giving of gifts, Mm -hmm. then there would be something um, like holding the other at bay by my use of money. Like if if every time I meet Gary... It's just, yeah, take take 10 bucks, take 10 bucks, take 10 bucks. Mm-hmm. At some point, what I'm doing is I'm maintaining, I mean, this is weird a little bit because it's, I'm not talking about exchange because I'm talking about giving at some point. But but what I mean to say is, like, it obviously protects my family um, by creating a sort of neutral, not neutral, a sort of just exchange. But what's not being done is bringing people into uh relationship bringing people into the extension of the family um that brother and sister status to all men right so i think that's why it's sort of a double-edged sword like on the one hand yeah it does protect you from um loss Mm -hmm. when you're dealing with people who are not yet your brother right but on the other hand it can be used so as to keep another person as not your brother right Right? yeah (laughs) so money like all coercive political acts seems to always be justified in this sort of remedial space where you can use it so long as there's sin mm-hmm. and you can use it so long as there's there's wickedness right but the if you were ever to say that the prevention of loss or the prevention of pain and the prevention of wickedness is the end you know like yeah. that's how we should live is in the society then you've com- committed a, i think a, a blasphemy really against creation because you've said that the best we can hope for in this world is to simply prevent loss that's impinging on us from from right. outside yeah it's like no 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 the best that we can hope for is communion yeah that's right so money should give way i'm saying to and you see this i mean with i mean there's there's some St. Thomas likens money to, I mentioned money being a legal thing, and St. Thomas makes that move first, you know, where uh, even like within the etymology of the word, like namas, law, and numisma, money, um, that there is that con- there's that connection um, theoretically as, as communicative attempts to bring about stability, equality within a society. Um, but it is like law is like, there might be some sort of law as like a directive Mm -hmm. by which you like raise somebody up in the way that they should go. But the bigger part of that we think about law is that it's remedial, that it 
that it happens once we have sinned and strayed the wrong way that we are uh, that we are introduced to a law mm-hmm. to to lead us out of it ultimately mm-hmm. and have it written on our hearts in virtue. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, so that happens with law, obviously, and and the tradition largely talks about money as performing that same function. Yeah, um, and so uh, and so it makes perfect sense why why it's supposed to lead or that it lead us out into this proper relationship as uh, with God as father, with Christian yeah, yeah, as yeah. brother, you know, with God children and God fathers and God mothers or, or that extension of the family is and the love of the family um, is, is what's ultimately supposed to conquer the world. Um, but what law, with law only kind of helping us along the way yeah. to that yeah. end. Yeah. No, and it does make sense out of the history of the church, which had right in early Christianity a very much, I mean, people describe it as like an apocalyptic Christianity where they're very much like, okay, old law is gone. We're no longer under the teacher. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so we're moving into the new law. And um, there was a certain like, whoa, 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 that happened when the world didn't immediately end, right? When it's not like, it wasn't, there was a, there seemed to be in early Christianity an anticipation of like a very radical difference where law was like completely transcended. But often what that led to is different heresies and they're getting condemned, condemned, condemned. Yeah. And one of the reasons was just simply that it was a mistake to imagine the the new covenant, the new law, as abolishing the old um, all of all at once, as if that wherever there was sin, there wasn't some degree of the old law still remaining. I mean, that's what the tradition is. It connected the old law with sin. Absolutely. Called it the law of sin. <laughs> But since we're still sinners, um, then law becomes dynamic. Like you get less and less old law and more and more new law as you get less and less sin and more and more virtue. And it seems like money tracks that almost exactly. That in the early church, you have this transition point that's very apocalyptic. It's like, money's out, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We're not using it. Um, And it's awesome. It's powerful because they're seeing the end. They're seeing the apocalypse. And and sometimes they really do think like the world's going to end you know, right. Maybe tomorrow. Yep. Um, as the world doesn't end, as there's the recognition that no, there's a battle to be won. We need to go out to all nations. Still, we need to go throughout history here. We've got to, we got to put on our boots here, that sort of thing. Um, then you get less of that early Christian condemnation, like just flat out condemnation. And you get more of that medieval, like reasoning on money. When can we use it? How can we use it? Yep. What shall we do with this mammon of iniquity? Kind of well, well, and actually, you know, like just looking at, and you mentioned some heresies, Arius was famous for condemning wealth, yeah. like the, the use and the possession of wealth. And, and it fits, I mean, in a certain sense, like the reasons why the early church wasn't you know, using money, you know, in these cases, was, as you said, it's like apocalyptic. He changed the reasoning. You know, he went Gnostic. Yeah. God didn't actually become man. Right. You know, like this material world was not elevated into something greater. Yeah. And thus we should kind of flee from it, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, similarly, uh, during the Middle Ages, this same heresy arose again, or similar heresy arose again in the spiritual Franciscans uh, who were condemned by like, John the Twenty Second, and I think also the Council of Vienne, where they, where they made this dichotomy between the fallen church and the real church, between those who used money and those who didn't. Mm-hmm. Because their founder, St. Francis, 
told all of his followers that you are not to hold money. Mm-hmm. You could take donations of some sorts, but but you know not of not of money, right? Um, and you can never possess, you just couldn't possess it possess it. Okay, so they didn't use the reasoning of Francis, and instead they they took it too far and didn't understand this dynamic movement of the church from old yeah. to new that all of us have to to work through. Yeah. Uh, and they just condemned it as well. For the but only church. for the whole church, but yeah. they ultimately, well, not just for the whole church, they said that some could, they couldn't, but they just considered everybody else a lesser church, I see. you know, yeah. which is, again, another another heresy right, that was right, condemned right. by by, uh, by the magisterium. They went and immunitized the eschaton, the <laughs> spiritual Franciscans. <laughs> yeah, so it is, I mean, it's a real, it's a real problem that, that arose, um, and it's, but the problem was not just a lack of, um, I mean, it's, but again, it's like all Catholic truths, it's extremely dynamic. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. And maybe it's a good place to wrap up by talking yeah. about today a little bit, because obviously we don't seem to be in any danger of immunitizing a eschatological endgame in which no one has money. We yeah. seem, <laughs> that doesn't seem to be our problem. I think we've talked about this before, that you know the tradition on virtue is that if you have a tendency towards vice in one direction, then you got to overshoot in the other direction to attain the golden medium. So yeah. if I'm a coward by nature, right, then I should kind of tend towards rash acts you yeah. know, instead of just trying to hit courage. Yep. I should just do things that seem crazy to me because that's that's the way I overcorrect and I find the, find the medium, which is different from the rash person who probably needs to do things that he would think are like cowardly and retreating in order to actually attain courage. Right. So too, our age is obviously one where we're tending towards just the... Covetousness. The, or whatever. Obviously. Yeah. I mean, just money-grubbing, money-panicked, anxious money boys. That's us. <laughs> and so I think we should not look at... I mean, because you see this all the time where people will write these things like, don't be like the spiritual Franciscans who thought this crazy thing about wealth. And it's like, dude, oh, I would love to be in an age where I thought anyone was even remotely close to like becoming a spiritual Franciscan who just <laughs> you know, condemned the use of money outright with no exceptions, that sort of thing. You yeah, know what I mean? Totally. It's like, we're not in that age. <laughs> so let's go the other way. Let's say what was good about those guys. And then let's hit the medium with a couple, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's do it. So if you are covetous, do something slightly prodigal, but good, <laughs> you know, keep well, yourself in check. And also recognize paganism as it, as it comes back. I mean, it's just so stupid the way that the contemporary like pagans think that what paganism means is like Thor being your god or whatever. Um, th- these are children. They're not. They're not. That's not paganism. Paganism is oh, yeah. the return of the exchange relationship over and against the brief light of the gift economy that that was given to the world through Christendom, and I think you see it all over the place, right? Like. Mm-hmm. Nonprofits as the way of giving is obviously a way that liberalism is becoming more like paganism and less like Christianity. That kind of written into the tax codes is a way of making every gift seem like an exchange, yep. right? Because basically says, okay, we're going to take your money regardless through taxes. So you give it to, you know, charity X, then we're not going to take that much in taxes. Which it's like, it's not bad in itself, but what it's done is made 
the almsgiving opportunity into an opportunity for exchange of some sort, mm -hmm. you know, where the idea of actually giving is still one, still once removed from actually giving. Yeah. Um, and it seems like this is also the case, like this has infected the church where gift and almsgiving is increasingly, it requires to, it's increasingly required to take the language of business and sh show some kind of return on investment. You yeah. Know, like, well, how many people did this ministry convert and how many, Yeah. which I'm not saying we shouldn't try to be successful, right? But where giving has to be translated into the language of gain and exchange in order to be done as opposed to really parting with our money. Um, yeah, we talk about philanthropic ROI and stuff like that. Yeah. I love that story from our buddy uh, Chris Check. And he was asking, who's the president of Catholic Answers? And um, there's some philanthropist that he was talking to, and he says, you know what? You know, if I give you a million dollars, like, what happens if you only give me, like, one convert? Like, that's just not a good exchange. And he said, Chris's response to him was, a million dollars for a convert? That'd be a bargain. For a million, I bet I could get you two. <laughs> I just love that. It was so good. And he just, you know, calls the bluff on the whole exchange right there. And yeah. says, let's let's think about these things in terms of eternity again. Yeah, yeah. there's a there's a story of um oh, man, now I don't know if it's Dostoevsky or the Desert Fathers, which says a lot of good things about Dostoevsky, but there's a story about a uh priest who's um who's dying. So this is why I think maybe it's Osimov. Maybe I'm thinking it's Osimov. I hope mm -hmm. I'm not. But basically a, a priest comes to him and is saying something to the effect of, you know, like, Father, I've, through my ministry, I've, you know, reached this many people and I've brought this many people to the faith. And and the the dying priest says, stop counting. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's that's the message of today, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Stop counting. Yeah. Unless you need to. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Unless your family's good, depends on it. Yeah. Where there is sin, there will be money. But let's all look forward to where there's neither. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. But it doesn't have to be your sin. I think that's the message of today. That is important. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can, yeah, you can get out. It could be somebody else's sin. Yes. Yeah. And that's when it's justified. Yeah. All right, everybody. Till next time. Toodle-doo. Do-do-do-do. <laughs>